I know I haven't posted a podcast in a while. I posted this on Instagram, but I just really needed a break for myself. And as someone who teaches about self-care and life balance, I just wanted to practice what I preach and take a minute for myself. You know, I started this podcast in quarantine when there was nothing going on. And because I'm back to work now on set more often, and I'm volunteering more for SAG-AFTRA, there's more going on there, and I'm coaching more, I just have less time to put into each episode. And a weekly episode is just not possible for me right now. So this will be a monthly podcast instead of a weekly one. I appreciate your understanding. And thank you so much for your messages and your shares on social media. It really means a lot to me. And if you wanted to put those same messages into an Apple review, it really helps other people find the podcast as well. So keep sending those messages and please write a review on iTunes. Why are actors more vulnerable to get sucked into something like this? Well, I think it's such a competitive industry and it's all encompassing, as you've been saying. Your identity and your livelihood are completely wrapped up in this same thing. And for the most part, I think that actors are are very sensitive, curious, open people. And so that makes you vulnerable. Part inspiration, part education, the whole artist with Courtney Rue, be your best you. Welcome to The Whole Artist with Courtney Rue, conversations with artists about acting, purpose, and the journey to finding wholeness. And my guest today is Dr. Yanya Lalich. I was first introduced to Dr. Lalich while watching Seduced on Stars with my husband. It's a four-part docuseries about India Oxenberg's experience and exit from the Nexium cult. If you don't know about Nexium, here's a quote that explains it well from the New York Times. Keith Raniere promised a path to happiness seducing wealthy people who felt they lacked a higher purpose in life. His company, Nexium, offered self-improvement workshops that became popular in Hollywood and business circles. But Keith was a psycho. That part's not in the New York Times. Um, he branded women and made them his sex slaves. But that's 10 years after the indoctrination. I mean, the first episode of The Vow, also about Nexium, you want to join the cult. So Dr. Lalich was an expert on Seduced, and then we saw her as an expert on Heaven's Gate, an HBO docuseries about the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, we went on a bit of a cult spiral this pandemic. Dr. Yanya Lalich, PhD, is a researcher, author, and educator specializing in cults and extremist groups, and has worked with current members, former members, and families of members of controversial groups. A former Fulbright scholar and professor emerita of sociology, Dr. Lalich is the founder and director of the Center for Research on Influence and Control. She has a master's in human development and a PhD in human and organizational systems. She's written numerous books, including her most recent one, Take Back Your Life. Recovering from Cults and Abusive Relationships. The audiobook is coming out soon with Sarah Edmondson narrating. Sarah is a former member of the Nexium cult as well and an actress. And Dr. Lalich is a former cult member herself. So why is a cult expert on the Whole Artist podcast, you ask? Well, when you've seen seven cult documentaries and one dramatization of a cult in a pandemic, everything can start to look like a cult. My guest, Dr. Lalich, says not everything is a cult, but a lot of organizations and people use manipulations that cults use. I think it's important to know the signs and question them. Know how you're being manipulated so you won't be. 
Know who is a sociopath narcissist so you can avoid following them. And listen to and trust people from the inner circle of that organization if they say they're being abused. I used to think I would never join a cult. But the thing is, the indoctrination starts early and the indoctrination part isn't as crazy as the culty stuff. And cults don't want stupid people. Cults recruit smart, beautiful, talented, and wealthy people because, as my guest says, the member supports the cult. The cult doesn't support the member. If someone's quote-unquote crazy or undesirable in some way, the cult doesn't want that person because each person is a recruitment tool. Why am I talking about cults on an acting podcast? If you've seen these documentaries, so many of the members are actors or celebrities. And not only does the cult like actors because of their charisma and sway on society's opinions, but the actor loves a cult because they're showered with love and acceptance. They're told they're changing the world and making it a better place. They can move up in the ranks quickly, unlike in acting where you're rejected most of the time, your success is not linear, and sometimes you do acting jobs that feel frivolous and lack purpose. After watching so many actors fall prey to cults in these documentaries, I knew I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, and I wanted to invite Dr. Lalich. I emailed her, and luckily for me, she responded. When I told people I was having Dr. Lalich on, everyone said, oh, improv's a cult. Oh yeah, theater's totally a cult. Well, maybe. Dr. Lalich explains the difference. Enjoy. Congratulations on all the work you've been getting. A lot of people are learning about cults in a whole new way and are being open, I think, to recognizing them maybe being in one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if only. (laughs) Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully. That's why I asked you to be here today. My husband and I have been obsessed watching, well, we started with The Vow, and then we watched Seduced, and then we watched Heaven's Gate and Waco and and. What we realized we were missing from the vow was explanations was explanations from someone like you. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't do that. I was filmed by them quite a bit, and they actually brought me to New York when the trial was going on. I stayed in an Airbnb with probably five or six of the survivors, and they were filming us every minute. But they didn't use you. I think they made be doing that in the second season because the first season just got up to the trials. So I'm thinking maybe I'll show up there. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so, because I think that was such an important part. And like I said, we really felt like we were missing something and we didn't know what it was until we saw the other documentaries that all had cult experts. And you were like, oh, this explains why he was doing this thing and and how people believed everything that he was saying. And you know, how the indoctrination works. Cecilia Peck did an excellent job, the director of Seduced, and she's Gregory Peck's daughter. Oh, no way. Yeah. So, you know, all the filming was done at her house and it just, you know, has all this memorabilia of Gregory Peck all over. And I mean, I was just thrilled to be there. Oh my God, that's so cool. So I'm hoping that we can cover today, like what a cult is and to know the signs of a cult and like talk about some specific cults. I want to start with you and your experience because how you got into this, how you became a cult expert was actually that you were in a cult yourself. So can you just share a little bit about your experience? Well, I was uh, 30 years old. I'd already been to college. Um, I had a degree from University of Wisconsin. And then after that, I had a Fulbright fellowship, studied again in France. I say those things to try to help people understand it's not stupid people who get into cults. (laughs) 
So I had been living on a Spanish island for about four years, and um, those were my hippie days. And I decided it was time to come back to the States. So I moved to San Francisco and I was new in town and I was a budding feminist and I was coming out as a lesbian. And so all this stuff was going on. It was the mid seventies, I, yeah, I guess 74. So it was the end of the Vietnam war. And a lot of people on the left were trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? You know, yeah. So people had study groups where a bunch of people would get together in someone's house and read whatever. So anyway, I met this woman who was a friend of a friend and she, uh, we would have these rousing political discussions, you know, we'd meet for coffee. And at some point she told me that they had a study group that was just for women. It was called Women in the State. And, you know, would I be interested? So I thought, sure, you know, that's, yeah, I'll meet some, I'll meet some new people. You know, I've always had kind of an intellectual bent. That sounds great. Um, and then she said, well, don't tell anybody. And I'm like, no, anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oh, you know, we want to keep it small and just the people we know. And so I thought, oh, whatever. So I joined the study group. There were maybe 10 or 12 women there. Um, I didn't realize that half the women there were already part of this secret organization that was behind the study group. And so we read um, revolutionary literature, you know, by Lenin and Mao and, and Le Duan from Vietnam and stuff like that. And basically the the idea was to get you to see that the only way to make real social change was to have a, a Marxist-Leninist vanguard party. Mm. So after being in the study group for, I don't know, maybe a month, uh, she wanted to meet with me again at my house. And she said, well, what have you been learning in the study group? And I said, oh, well, I've learned that you need to have a Marxist-Leninist party to make any kind of real social huh. change. And she said, what if, what if we told you we have one? <laughs> well, here's the solution oh, wow. to the problem that we told you you had. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I, of course, was interested. And so then they do this kind of bait and switch. She said, well, first you have to fill out this application and we'll let you know if you're accepted. Mm. So I filled out this huge application, which, of course, asked me everything about my life, my family, my bank accounts, wow. you know, every bit of information about me and turned that in. And then about a week later, I guess she came and told me I was accepted. You know, I really didn't know what I was joining. And I actually thought I was joining an all women's organization. That's what they told me. And they told me it was international and that it was multiracial. And of course, it was tiny. At that point, there were maybe 25 members. Then yeah. there were men and women. Anyway, I was told, you know, now you have to um, be on call 24 hours a day and you, you need to pick a new name. You have to have a party name. Wow. No one should know your real name. You have to keep this secret, blah, blah, blah. You know, I knew a lot of my friends who, you know, new friends of mine that I'd met were joining and I knew some of the women involved. And I thought, well, I guess if they're doing it, I'll do it. And of course, now we laugh with each other. Like if you hadn't joined, right. I wouldn't have joined. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. So anyway, um, it kind of went from there. I immediately rose up in leadership and had a lot of responsibility. I was part of the inner circle. Yeah. I was one of the brainwashers, so to speak. I led the indoctrination programs, and I really thought that we were doing something very important and very serious. And actually, all that we were really doing was trying to pump up the reputation of our leader who was a drunk. She was a sociology professor who never got tenure anywhere. She was a very domineering big woman. And, um, and our, our days were 
were pretty brutal. I mean, we worked like 17 hour days, seven days a week, year after year. Um, We had hardly any money. If you worked a job, you had to report to your party facility immediately after work. You didn't go home for dinner. You know, we, we just were inundated. And were you totally to stay away from your friends and family in this group? Yeah. In some cases, yes. I mean, mostly we were at first told to try to recruit anybody we could. If somebody wasn't recruitable, you weren't to see them. And you, of course, never had time to see anyone anyway. Right. Uh, So after a while, you know, this became your whole world. But because I was in the inner circle, I, you know, I saw a lot of what really went on. Um, Most of the members had no clue, you know, that the leader was a drunk and, you know, all that. Right. So that that got a bit disillusioning after a while. And, you know, and then an incident happened, a, a personal incident in my life happened that sort of totally broke it for me. I was like, I, I can't do this, but I couldn't figure out how to get out. I was psychologically trapped. I figured they'd come after me because we did do that. I had nowhere to go. I had no money. I had a car that wouldn't go five miles. I I had no friends on the outside. My parents were dead. I, I was just trapped. Wow. So for five years, I was absolutely miserable. I would, every morning I'd take a shower and I'd cry my eyes out in the shower because we were never allowed to cry. We weren't to have any emotion. You know, yeah. we were to be these schooled fighters. And then I'd get in my car and I, I literally would wish that I'd get killed in a car accident because it was the only way I could see out. Wow. Yeah, it was it was miserable. But then what happened is uh, we finally had our revolution. And at one point, we called together all the members. The leader was out of the country. We told them what was going on. It took about three days to convince people that we were telling the truth. And uh, then we took a vote and we voted unanimously to expel the leader and to dissolve the organization. Oh, wow. So I mean, I'm surprised it only took three days. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we all got out. I mean, at that point, there were about 125, you know, full-time cadre members. Um, there had been times when we had grassroots organizations of thousands of members, you yeah. know. Anyway, so we all got out and then I had to uh, put my brain back together. Yeah. How long did that take you? Um, that took, I'd say about five years, which I think is about the average time. If, if someone spent any amount of time in a cult, of course it depends on the experience, but I moved to New York, um, because one of my jobs in the cult was to build us a publishing house. So I learned publishing and I had publishing contacts. So I figured I could get a job in New York, which I was lucky I did. You know, I had a job. I went home at night and cried and drank and tried to figure out what the hell had happened to me. And And at the time, the only literature around was about religious cults. And, you know, I had been in a political cult. So then I thought, well, maybe it really wasn't a cult. And I tried to do all these analyses and figured out, yeah, we were a cult. (laughs) Let's talk about that. What makes a cult a cult? Because when I'm watching these documentaries and reading your book, you know, I'm thinking about organizations I've been involved with or seminars I've gone to and... I'm trying to piece together, was this a cult? So can you explain what a cult is? What are the signs of a cult and a cult leader? Right. A cult is, um, a, you know, a social system. It's, it always has the authoritarian leader who came up with the idea. 
presents him or herself as having some special message and can lead you to the, you know, the only one who can lead you to the path right. of salvation, whatever that salvation may be. It may be religious, political, it may be improving your skills, it may be losing weight, it may be more money. Then you have what I call a transcendent belief system, which means that this is a belief system that gives you the answers to everything, to the past, the present, and the future. Yeah. Right? So it's an all-encompassing belief system as well as being exclusive. Okay. It's all-encompassing and exclusive. And actually what I got from you is that the belief system itself doesn't matter. It's just a tool. Yes. It's the tool to bind you there. Absolutely. I mean, I keep saying, if, if you want, I can probably find you a chocolate chip cookie cup, you know, <laughs> a cult form around any type of belief system. But the important part about the belief system, besides being uh, giving you the answers to everything, is that it has a requirement that you must transform, mm -hmm. that you yeah. have to transform yourself in order to be accepted on this path. And so that's the indoctrination program. And then the final bits for me are what I call interlocking mechanisms of influence and control. So the controls are going to vary with every group. It may be what you can wear, how many children you should have or not have, or you know who you should live with, things like that. And then the influences are the more subtle pressures. And that's where they're preying on your emotions. So it's guilt, shame, love, fear. It's all the things we learn to respond to, we've grown up to respond to. They're things that, you know, that touch us. So it's really just basic social psychology. I mean, most cults don't have to use drugs or hold a gun to your head to you know, convince right. you. It's these mechanisms that they use. And one of the most important ones is peer pressure. You know, That's why these are groups, yes. right? <laughs> As we grow up, I think it's once we pass adolescence, um, our peers are far more important to us than say our parents or other adults. So peer pressure having models within the group, having people who are showing you how to do things, who you look up to, people you respect. And making it normal. Making it normal. Um, most people, most cults will assign when you're a new member, some kind of person to help guide you. Like in our group, we called it a one help, right? And so that person, you were supposed to express all your doubts and hesitations. And of course, all they did was go back and report to leadership. So they knew what to criticize you right. about next time meeting, right? It's like the collateral in Nexium, right? You give secrets about yourself and then they use it against you. Exactly, exactly. So what you've got is this interlocking system with the leader, the belief system, and these mechanisms of influence and control. And through the indoctrination program, you eventually, um, probably not everyone, but most people, you will eventually internalize uh, these beliefs, you will internalize the, the norms and the values and the morality of the cult leader. You give up your own sense of mo your own moral code. Mm -hmm. uh, you lose self-confidence. You no longer trust yourself. You can only trust the leader. Once you have gotten to that point where you've completely internalized the cult, so to speak, you become almost like a little microcosm of the cult yourself. And that's when you see you know, what we might call the true believer syndrome, you know, these people who are completely closed minded, who are impossible to have real rational discussions right. with, who are, in a sense, deployable agents who will do anything they're asked to do without having to think about it. Yes. And before I mention any cults, I want to ask you if the point of this podcast today is to help someone realize that they are, in fact, in a cult, should we name them or not? 
Is it helpful to say this group right now is a cult that is happening right now? Or is it like, here's all the, the things that happen in a cult and let the person figure it out on their own? Actually, often what, what's done during interventions is, uh, you know, we show people films of other cults so that they can see the parallels. Like, oh, we do that in my cult, only we call it right. X. It, there's an advantage to people learning about other cults so that they can assess their own experience. I'm not about naming names, although I think there's some quite obvious uh, well-known cults in our country. There's one that I specifically don't talk right. about. The one we won't mention because they'll come after you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I want to know is like, are there levels to cults? Like, so we have the Jim Jones who kills people or makes them kill themselves and their children. And we have, you know, Marshall Applewhite who leads people to also kill themselves. Like these are the, and then Keith Raniere who like you said, sadistic and making women have sex with him. And like, there's that level. And then there's like scam artists, right? And then there's also, I think, people who who were in a cult and learn these things and think they're helpful and maybe share these ideas with other people who aren't sadistic and manipulative, but who just think this is the way to do it and like teach other people to do it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Within a particular cult, there's going to be levels of experience. And that's why uh, you may find people who had not such a bad time. And then you may find people like myself, who was in top leadership, who knew, holy Christ, what we did, right? right? So you can have people in the same cult having different experiences, um, because most cults will have layers of membership from the, those very high up to those in the outer rings who maybe just donate money or go to a class now and then or whatever, help spread the message, you know, bring in contacts. And then also cults in general exist on a continuum. As you were saying, there are those cults that are extremely harmful, uh, the ones you know that make the news that we hear about. And then there are cults on the far less harmful part, end of the continuum. I, I always get asked, are there benign cults? And for me, there really isn't such a thing as a benign cult because for me, Part of what defines a cult is that you're giving up your autonomy. Mm. And I, even if it's that darn chocolate chip cookie cult, <laughs> I don't think it's good for you to give up your autonomy. So I, I describe them as most harmful to less harmful okay. on that continuum. And of course, there are all kinds of cults. And today, one of the ones uh, that we've seen in, in, in the last couple decades are the uh, what I call the new age training programs, the leadership programs, the management programs, these seminars that people get sent to. And sometimes they're out in the desert and they go on for five days and they make you walk over hot coals and things like yes. that. Yes. Some of those are extremely cultic. Um, certainly they are using the same types of techniques that cults use to confine people, to influence them, right. you know, to to get them to adopt their philosophy, to recruit more people, because that's what, you know, they're mostly money-making ventures. Yes. I was going to ask you if we could play a game called, is it a cult? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there's actually another cult I never talk about because they sued me. So Really? Is that a tactic that cults use to sue, 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 sue people? Yes, some cults do. I mean, certainly Ranieri did right. in Mexico. Um, there's several other well-known cults that we know uh, try to shut people up and terrorize people by suing them. 
Um, and then some of those cults that have a lot of money will help smaller cults sue people or de help defend them if there are lawsuits against them. Mm -hmm. That's definitely one of the tactics to um, primarily to shut people up. You know, it also has the impact of making members afraid to leave and afraid to, or if they do leave, afraid to speak out. Right. They're going to get sued or their family members are going to be told never to talk to them again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And who wants that? Exactly. No one wants that. Okay. So I go to this business seminar to, you know, break through barriers, achieve goals, be more successful. I went with a couple friends and family members and we went early in the morning, 8 a.m. We didn't know it was going to go till like midnight, but it, it did for two and a half days. Actually ended up getting a hotel room, even though we live 40 minutes away. And so this is a true story. This is a true me? story I'm telling you. It's okay. a very popular, well-known person too. And very little breaks, told in the beginning, you should separate from the people you came with so that you could have your own experience. Mm -hmm. or, or, or there's another similar one that I went to. I'll kind of talk about them both at the same time because they one was a copycat of the other, I think. Why are you going to these, may I ask? I'm not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm realizing, Dr. Lalich. <laughs> this is why I like broke down this morning in tears. <laughs> um, because I thought they were helpful to me. Of course. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, cults are going to have a message that is going to resonate with someone. Right. You know, it had, the message has to resonate with you. And it has to be a positive message. I mean, no one would join a cult if they really knew they were going to end up committing suicide or if they thought they were going to rob banks or do whatever. Right. You're joining a cult to better the world, usually. Usually, yes. It's ide Idealism is the common denominator among people who join right. cults. And obviously, you don't know you're joining a cult. Yeah. I've had, I have friends who are in a group that we won't talk about that said, I would never join a cult. Like I'm not, I'm not in a cult. I would never join a cult. And I think, yeah. you know, Mark <laughs> and, and Sarah said that as well. Like no one joins a cult. You right. join something yeah. to, with a purpose to make the world better, your idealist. And then you have some sadistic or sociopathic leader narcissistic leader who manipulates exactly. and turns it into something else. You got it. You got it. So you can start doing podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I brought you here today to show you that I know everything you know now in the two weeks that I've been doing research on you. <laughs> um, well, we're changing our we're changing our belief system, right? While we're there, we're becoming a better version of ourselves. We're hypnotized at one point and got a mantra so that we could do so this dangerous activity. Can I say walk over coals or would that give it away? <laughs> a number of people walk over coals. Okay, so we're walking over coals, right? And then there's a hallway full of products that you can buy and the next seminar is $3,000 and the next one is $10,000 and get out your credit cards. And so we didn't get out our credit cards, but I still believe that the weekend was helpful and I still believe that I had more confidence and I was a better person and learned tools that made me a better person and like still followed this person for a long time. This other one that I went to that was like a copycat of him, I really had bad feelings about and was like, not, I don't like delete, unsubscribe, whatever. At the end of the weekend, he said... <laughs> I don't know how he said it, but it was like, pay me $1,500 and you can be a volunteer for me this whole year. So not only were the people volunteering their time to help him make 
money hand over fist at these seminars, but they were also paying for this opportunity to be his volunteer. Right. Be slave labor. Yeah. And of course you look back and you're like, like, of course I'm like, why? But in the moment, it's like, no, this is, this is making me better. This is helping me. This is attributing to my success. And I can look at my friends who are in this certain group and I know that they attribute their success to this group, right? But I know looking at them, this is because you're talented and you're smart. This is not because you are in this group. That's not why you're successful. But it was hard for me to look at myself and, and think the same thing. Yeah, well, what you described is perfect for uh, you know, showing what goes on. First of all, you probably got invited to this by someone you know, right? Definitely the the one where he invited you to be a volunteer. The one, the first one was like an internet search. Okay. So I asked you that because the research shows that uh, more than two-thirds of people who get into cults are recruited by a friend, a family member, or a coworker. Mm -hmm. So that means... What? It means it's much harder to say no to someone you know. Right. So somebody in the office is pushing you to go to this weekend thing. Time, you know, finally you'll say, okay, I'll go. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but of course, people are now finding a lot of stuff on the internet as well. So they got you there. And then once they get you there, they do all of these things and keep you there for endless hours to exhaust yeah. you. And by exhausting you, they're essentially working to shut down your critical thinking. Exactly. When you're exhausted, you can't think straight. When you're chanting, you can't think straight. When you've got loud music playing and everybody's cheering and there's all this rah-rah and all this so-called positive energy, you get swept up into that. It feels really good. Oh, yeah, of course it feels good. They make it feel good. It's like, like you said, the love bombing. And then everyone's your friend and everyone loves each other. Oh, yeah. You've got these new wonderful people who love you and they're suddenly all around you and you're like, oh my God, you found this fantastic thing. And then when you leave, you crash and you want to feel that high again. So then you go to the next thing, right? right. And you bring up your friends because, oh my God, this is so wonderful. Right. My friend joked, we wa I made him watch the first episode of The Vow and he was like, yeah, I want to join Nexium." <laughs> I was like, keep, <laughs> keep watching. <laughs> Right. And they did that deliberately. I mean, they wanted to show people how appealing it was on the surface, how attractive it right. was. And why would people go there? And separating you from the people you came with, of course, is to isolate you. Mm -hmm. And then you can only look to the people around you who are modeling the behavior. And in almost all of those kinds of seminars, sessions, whatever we want to call them, we, we, you know, we call them large group awareness trainings was, was originally what they were called back in the 70s and 80s, and you know, mass marathon trainings. So when you're, you have these people around you, many, many, many of whom are plants, right? They, they're people who've been there before, those slave labor people. Yeah, yeah, the volunteers. Who, right, who know exactly what to do when, how to behave. And so you're watching what they're doing. And we, you know, when in Rome, we do as the Romans do. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely just that, that group behavior and group mentality that gets generated. And you think it's, you know, there's this guy up there or woman or whoever, you know, the big churches do the same thing, right. you know, some very culty churches. And so they get you completely swept up in this idea. 
And of course, there are going to be some good things you might learn. We can't deny that. Right. I mean, if everything was horrible, no one would go. If everything was horrible, no one would ever stay. So there have to be some good bits. I mean, even in the group I was in, there, there was some very positive political work that we did that really had a great effect on the political scene in San Francisco. But, you know, does the fact that Hitler got the trains running make it okay that he became right, you know, right. the emperor of Germany, right? <laughs> do, do we have to weigh the positives and the right. negatives? And the negatives and the exploitation and the trauma on people far outweighs whatever positives might have been gained. Okay. So then, you know, when I'm telling people, oh my God, I'm so excited. I have a call expert coming on the podcast. Immediately, people are like, well, oh yeah, improv's a cult. Oh yeah, theater's a cult. So let me explain what happens in, let's say, improv. You want to be an improviser, so you pay to take classes, right? In order to perform on the stage, you have to pay to take these classes. When you perform on the stage, they're selling tickets, but you as a performer are not getting paid money. You know, six or seven probably days a week, so many hours of your life, like you have no time to do anything else. And you're paying a coach or a director to help you put on this show. And at any moment, at any time, a group of people or the leader of this organization can come see your show and say, your team is fired. You're not going to be a team anymore. We're dissolving your team. Is that cult-like? Well, it's obviously using some of the same techniques of, you know, keeping you busy all the time. It's getting you involved in something. But one would hope that it's voluntary. Of course. You sign on. You can leave if you want to leave, presumably. Probably a lot of people don't leave on their own because they've invested a lot into it or this is the best coach in the industry or whatever. You know, I mean, that's my point, that cults use basic social psychology. They aren't using anything weird. And so, yes, we see these things all around us. You know, I get asked all the time, are the Marines a cult? Is the U.S. government a cult? No. And even the Marines, which has a very intense indoctrination program, of course, because they are creating deployable agents. When you get told to go and shoot to kill, you're going to go shoot to kill. That's, that's what you've signed up right. for. But A, you've signed up for it. They aren't telling you who to marry. You have health insurance. You have a pension. You have a finite term, which you can leave or renew. And also, there's a, a chain of accountability. You can take things to you know, the next commander up. Mm -hmm. Now, you may not always be heard, especially if you're a woman and you've been sexually abused or a minority, but that, you know, right. I'm not saying... I'm not saying it's, it's perfect, perfect, but there are checks and balances. And in cults, there are absolutely no checks and balances. You can never hold the leader accountable. It is not a democratic organization. Okay. So that is a big difference that you can't criticize the leader. I don't know if your improv things, you can criticize the coach or he's too, you know, well-respected. Probably there's a little bit of that fear and love there, like I said in the beginning, I think there's there's organizations that use manipulative tactics, and then there's like cults that have a sociopath running the organization. And either way, though, you want to be aware of how you are being manipulated and why. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of those improv things and, you know, certainly some theater groups have become cults um, because the setup is so similar in a way. And people are so devoted. And I believe we always say actors are vulnerable. Are you vulnerable? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's prime territory. 
for something to evolve into a cult. Can we talk about that? (laughs) Why are actors more vulnerable to get sucked into something like this? Well, I think you could probably tell me better than I could because you are one, but I think it's because it's such a competitive industry and it's all encompassing, as you've been saying. Your identity and your livelihood are completely wrapped up in this same thing. And for the most part, I think that actors are, are very sensitive, curious, open people. And so that makes you vulnerable. Absolutely. I would agree. And being vulnerable isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, we, we have to realize we're all vulnerable a million times in our lives, right? We're vulnerable if our dog just died. We're vulnerable because it's rained for four days, you know? <laughs> if there's a global pandemic. If there's a global pandemic, right, exactly. And so it's not like that's some besmirching mark on you that you're vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. We're all human beings and we're all social animals. And so we're all looking for a framework to understand the world or a way to be better or a way to make the world better. Uh, And I think another level to that is there's so much rejection in our business that we think that we're not enough and we need something outside of ourselves to show us and tell us that we are enough, searching for validation or for to better ourselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I should have thought of that. But yes, there, there's a... <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> a lot, yeah, seeing you, you can be my partner. Yeah. There's a, a lot of self-esteem and the sense of self and self-confidence. Yeah, this is, when this was happening, when I'm going to these seminars... I'm at a point where I'm at the breaking point in my career. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I'm crying. I'm like thinking I'm not enough. I'm too fat. I'm ugly. And like, and then this person's going to help save me. Right. Right. So once you realize, oh, hey, am I in a situation where I'm being manipulated? Am I in a cult? Or you have friends who you can see from the outside are in a cult or are being manipulated in a certain way. What are some steps you can take? So if, if you have someone in a cult, a friend of yours who, or a relative who you think is in a cult, uh, the most important thing is to do your research, find out everything you can about that group. If possible, find former members of that group don't confront the person. Don't say, oh my God, you're in a cult because <laughs> that's going to just drive them in. You always want to keep the door open. So obviously it's going to depend on what your relationship is with that person, but you want to try to nudge them in very creative, gentle ways to get them to remember who they were before and that life really wasn't so horrendous in that other world. Right, because right, that's a tactic of the cult leaders is to say, those people are the enemies. The right. life out there is scary and hard and right. difficult. And in here, it's, it's not. Safe. It's safe right. in here. Right. If you have contact with the person, try to never break contact or lose contact. I mean, they may cut you off, but you should never cut them off. And try to talk to them or remind them of things other than what they're doing now. So remind them of happy times in the past. You know, send them photos of family gatherings or trips you took together or whatever it might be. Like what you want to do is tug at their emotional heartstrings, right? Their emotions are obviously being manipulated in the cult and they've probably 
are at the point where you know they may not even remember what life was like before. So you want to jog those memories. You want to remind them of happy times. Um, maybe you know bring in other friends or family members who were important to that person. Like oh, they loved Aunt Mary, and so get Aunt Mary to make a phone call. Yeah. You know whatever it might be. And different people can play different roles. Uh, some people in the family or friendship group may be you know hard cop or soft cop. But the important thing is to is for someone to always let the person know that they're a safe haven, that if they ever think of of changing what they're doing, uh, you know, you don't say if you ever think of leaving the cult, yeah. you know, but if they ever think of making a change, um, you're there for them. Your home is there for them. And they want they need to know that there's a place where they're not going to be humiliated. They're not going to have people saying, see, I told you so. They're just going to be able to chill out. Uh, talk about it if they want to talk about it, you know, things like that. So along the way, what you want to do, and this kind of gets to the, the person who's in the cult, along the way, you, you want to, how do I want to say this? Everybody who's in a cult has doubts and hesitations. I, I don't think there's a person who doesn't. Right. You're just taught to not listen to those instincts. Yeah. 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 You have to shove them away. You can't express them. You can't entertain those ideas. Right. There's no way so all these little doubts and hesitations, the way I see it is you, you shove all this stuff on a shelf in the back of your head. So what you want to do is plant seeds that'll grow on that shelf, right? That'll, that'll make that shelf heavy enough that one day it's going to break and all these doubts are going to come spilling out. And hopefully then the person has that aha moment and realizes, oh, th this is not a good situation. That doesn't mean they're going to leave on the spot, right. but hopefully it'll kind of break open the hold a little bit. So as someone on the outside trying to help them, the best thing you can do is plant those seeds, plant those seeds, and never give up. I mean, I do a support group on Saturdays, a Zoom support group with survivors. And there's people who, who left years and years and years ago. And then there's people who left a month ago. And there's people who were in for 40 years and finally yeah. left. So you should never give up hope. It was so heartbreaking to watch Heaven's Gate and Sawyer. The guy who's out was so heartbreaking to hear him say, like, I still believe this. I still think that I'm going to. Yeah, I missed the boat. Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of Heaven's Gate believers. And there's believers who still believe in uh, David Koresh of the Branch Davidians. They believe he's going to rise up and come back. There are those Nexium believers, you know, those followers of Ranieri who are still absolutely loyal to him still and trying to spread the message. So. Yeah, people can stay attached for a really long time, even if there's some kind of big scandal or, or some kind of outbreak. For the person who's in the cult, if they realize that maybe this isn't a good situation, they may not identify it as a cult, but they just know it's not right. They then have to carefully plan how to extricate themselves. And that's that, again, is going to depend on the uh, location where they are, if they're around the leader or not, or if they're on a compound somewhere, or and it's going to depend on what their position is in the group or how long they've been in. But they need to carefully make a plan of how to leave without stirring up too much fuss. I mean, in most groups, in some groups, you can just leave. Right. In Heaven's Gate, for example, people could say, I, I want to leave, and they'd give them bus fare and let them go. Because most cults don't want you if you're wavering. They, they'd want the hardcore true believers, right? right? You're just going to make trouble if you're you know, spreading doubts and you're going to infect the other people. But in most cases, you aren't going to announce you're leaving. So you need to find 
the best time for you to leave and have a plan of where you want to go or who you want to go to. And you go on that recovery roller coaster, uh, which is quite a ride. So where can people <laughs> find you and your Zoom support group and, and your research that you've done? Well, my website is www.cultresearch.org. There's a lot of material there. There's a way that people can email me through that website. Um, if they're interested in the support group, then I can, um, I co-facilitate it with a, a local therapist who was also in a cult. So we both have uh, both personal experience and years of work in this field. And she does the sort of intake and the bookings. Um, we, we try to keep it relatively small just so that people really have a chance to talk. I mean, with the, I think at one point we had 20 and that yeah. was too many. So trying to keep it around 14 and it's men and women, it's all different cults. It's people from other countries, people from around the States. That's great that you could do that now. Yeah. The one good thing of the pandemic was well, it spurred us on to do this. And we're also thinking of starting a support group for families and friends who have someone in a cult. So one thing that I always questioned when watching the cult documentaries is, does this leader believe what he's spouting? or And, and what you say is it doesn't matter, right? Or you don't know. On some level, it doesn't matter. And, and I think that 99% of them are straight out con artists. You know, there may be someone who actually believes he's the second coming of Christ, uh, who's that delusional. I think what happens is as these narcissists are allowed to get away with more and more and more harmful behaviors, whatever it might be, acting out, the longer they're allowed to do all that, I think the more dangerous they become and the more extreme they become uh, because they aren't held accountable. So I think at some point they probably do become delusional and perhaps believe some of their own shtick. But I think more it's just the power, you know, the love of power, and then being able to act out whatever their personal proclivities are, whether it's sex, money, you know, guns, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And so as for characteristics, I think they're all narcissists. It's all about them and their ego. And then whatever mental disorders or, or personality disorders they might have are going to obviously have an impact on the kind of cult that it's going to be. You know, so we've seen someone like Rajneesh, you know, who had 98 Rolls Royces and that was something he loved. It was like driving down the road with his followers throwing roses at him, you know. And then we had a little political cult leader who basically lived in a closet in Brooklyn townhouse and, you know, got to screw a lot of the women. So whatever shape they are, that's what's going to shape yeah. the group. Yeah, but usually it's about control, money, power, sex for the leader. And for the followers, it's about creating an ideal world, becoming a better version of yourself. And the followers are open and empathetic and the leaders are, this is my way and have no empathy to the harm that they're doing. Exactly. Have you watched the A&E series? It's called Cults and Extreme Belief. I don't think so. No. No. Oh, so it's a nine part series. I was the consulting producer. It's about seven different cults. And the last two, we brought together these former members who had never met each other before. So the last two are kind of like sports sessions. Oh, cool. I loved the explained you did. Cults explained. That was great. You have a TED Ed talk. 
that was such an honor when they asked me to write that. I was like, that's oh. really cool. And the, yeah, the animator was so great. Yeah. And then you're in Seduced. You're in Heaven's Gate. What else are you in? I'm in a jillion documentaries. And there's actually one about my story. It's on YouTube. You have to pay like $1.99 for it. Oh, too much. I can't do it. <laughs> it's called Revolution Isn't a Tea Party. Oh, it's a docudrama that Investigations Discovery did in 2014. So it's my story. And my best friend who I recruited is there to corroborate stuff. And then they have this actress playing out these parts. And I told them I wanted Helen Mirren. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> they didn't do <laughs> Helen Mirren. And they said, oh, don't worry. We have this young Sigourney Weaver. And she has this ponytail. Never in my life have I had a ponytail. <laughs> give her a ponytail but anyway it's interesting this is why you became a producer on future ones right you're like i want some creative control over this exactly. amazing well i will definitely check those out another thing that i found really interesting when i read your book take back your life what they don't talk about in cult documentaries that you talk about in this book is that you can have a cult of one-on-one -on -one relationship or a family cult yeah. And I think we were the first to even talk about that. And there are plenty of one-on-one -on -one cults and plenty of family cults. I mean, we've seen, you know, in the past few years, we've seen a lot of these family cults where the father or the mother or the grandfather or the grandmother, whoever, you know, just kept everybody contained in a certain way, uh, believed they were some kind of special person. Th those groups are often very violent um, because they're they're mostly sheltered. They're mostly under the rug. I mean, we don't know about them until something tragic happens. Yeah. And those family cults, I think, are, are some of the hardest to leave. I mean, I think it's much harder to leave the smaller cults than the large cults because you're so confined and you're probably much more in contact or around the cult leader. And it's obviously, it's you know, yeah, it's your whole life. And if you're all living in one house and watching each other, it's going to be pretty hard to walk out that door. Is an abusive relationship always a one-on-one -on -one cult? No, I think abusive relationships are abusive relationships, and some of them can be cultic. I think when the abuser, again, takes on this persona of being someone special, being kind of godlike, yeah. um, you know, being this higher power and starts to absolutely control you and destroy you in that way. Oh, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And how long did it take you to decide to get your degree after you got out of the cult? Uh, it took 10 years after I got out of the cult. As I said, it took quite a few years just to get my head straight. You know, when I got out, I, I couldn't even read the front page of a newspaper out of sitting. I was just, my mind was just yeah. shattered. I was able to work at my job, but I, I, I couldn't do much else. And I was terrified. And I was in New York which is like the cultural Mecca. And here I'd been in this group for like 10 years. I maybe saw two movies. Wow. And so I'd have to go on these business lunches and I had no clue what anybody was ever talking about. And I remember that first year when I watched the Oscars, I was alone in my apartment watching the Oscars. Well, with my dog, <laughs> of course. And I was just crying and crying and crying because I was doing this like ordinary thing that people do of sitting home on a Sunday night and watching the Oscars. I had no idea what any of the Aww. movies were or anything or who the actors were, <laughs> but it was just like, yeah. this, you know, this like normal thing. So anyway, I finally got into therapy. At the time in New York, there was a, a cult clinic that the therapist specialized in cult after effects. 
and then after I think it was five years, I moved back to California, back to San Francisco. And I'd say pretty early on, I thought about going to grad school, but I didn't think I could do it. I mean, I actually, at one point I signed up for just a creative writing class at NYU. And once it got to the point where we were supposed to stand up and read what we wrote and have people comment on it, I dropped out of the class because that's what we did in my cult. We all sat around and criticized each other all the time. So it was like, yeah, Yeah. I started grad school in, I guess, 95 and I got out of the cult in late 85. So it took about 10 years. And even while I was in grad school, you know, going for the PhD, I, I would have moments when I would just dissolve and say, I can't do this, you know, and my advisor would, who actually knew my cult leader. So that helped. And he would kind of pump me up and keep me going. But um, it's really, you know, these things are difficult to cross those barriers and carry on. So I'm certainly glad I did it. The world is glad you did it. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's it's great that you've been able to help so many people do what you did, which is get out and get healthy after your experience. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I mean, I guess one thing is I wish people would would be better consumers uh, when they're signing up for something. You know, when we go to buy a car, we don't buy the first car we see. And, you know, we drive it around. We look at consumer reports. We ask friends. And if people did some good, solid research before they signed on for a particular seminar or, you know, gave their life away to someone, there's a there's a massive amount of information on the Internet yeah. today. People speaking, you know, writing about and telling about their experience. I mean, that was something I was saying before when you're trying to help someone change their mind or maybe see things a little differently. Having former members working with you can be really helpful because they've been there and they know how it works. And even at some point, being able to talk to that person, you know, that's why the support groups are so helpful, where people understand each other, support each other, because they've been through it as well. So, yeah, do your research. Take time. The guru is always going to come back another day. You don't have to see him tomorrow. (laughs) But he makes you think he's going. It's like, I hate the manipulation and sales tactics of this false urgency. It's something that has always really like made me sick to my stomach of like, oh, this is the last day you could get this product or this is the last day you could work with me. It's like, um, I, you're going to be around for the rest of your life selling this product. Like, right. About those, uh, what I call these new age training and leadership and management programs, if you're being asked to sign a waiver saying that they're not, they can't be held responsible if something happens to you, that's probably a good reason not to go to that seminar, because why would they be asking you to sign such a document? Um, So I think to me, that's one of the red flags for those kinds of invitations. Don't sign a waiver. Don't sign your life away. Well, amazing. I know that you are a busy woman and you have lots of people to help. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it and appreciate what you're doing for people who have been in cults. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Ciao. Bye. In the days following this interview, I kind of went into a dark place. I was really questioning my whole belief system. Was everything I was taught bullshit? Was I manipulating people unknowingly because that's what I was taught? In the weeks since, I've had so many conversations with other people about the topic. Everyone assured me that just because you may have learned some things from a narcissist doesn't mean you are one. I think there's a fine line between an egotistical poor leader and someone who's pretending to be your savior and who you give your autonomy away to. Someone who says, you can only trust me Don't listen to anyone or anything else. 
And the belief system that a cult leader chooses to use is just a tool. It doesn't mean that the belief system is bullshit. But now that I know all this, I know better and I can do better. I can pick and choose what to still believe. It's not all or nothing. And I can listen to my gut and not ignore the red flags and questionable advice. And one of the things I just keep asking myself is, who does it benefit for me to believe this? For example, there's this belief that we shouldn't talk about how much money we make with our coworkers. And like, who really benefits from that belief? It's the people giving out the paychecks. And hey, if you're listening to this and you're questioning an organization or a person, I'm a safe space. Please reach out. And reach out to Yanya too, because... She's the expert, and she's awesome. Also, thanks to Dr. Lalich, I'm in touch with Sarah Edmondson, the actress from Vancouver who was one of the top recruiters and then the whistleblower of the Nexium cult. She was branded with Keith Raniere's initials. Her and her husband have a podcast called A Little Bit Culty. There are organizations out there, and I've been in them, that are just a little bit culty, you know? Maybe they're not a full-blown cult where the leader sexually abuses the members, but they're questionable in other ways. If you like this episode and this topic is interesting to you, please let me know. Sarah Edmondson and I are planning on talking soon, and I want to know if this stuff interests you. Thank you so much to Dr. Yanya Lalich for your time and expertise. Thanks to Eric Backus for mixing and editing this episode, as well as Mandy Wetzel for your assistance on the episode. And thank you for listening, subscribing, sharing. I hope you learned something. I hope you were inspired. And I hope you feel better than you did before you were listening. Be your best you. I'll talk to you next time.